Good morning. It's good to see you. I've been warned that at 8.30 it would look like nobody was coming. But I'm glad to see you. We've come to the point in our study of majoring on the minors to the book of Habakkuk, and I invite you to turn to it, and it's real easy to find. Once you get to Nahum, hang a right. We know nothing about Habakkuk as an individual other than his name that he was a prophet. The text doesn't tell us that he's a prophet, but we surmise that from the sixth verse Actually, the first verse, the word burden can mean oracle or prophecy. And so from that inference, we conclude that he was a prophet. He was treated as a prophet in putting together the Old Testament narrative. We don't know when he wrote. The closest we can get to anything internally about it is in verse 6 of chapter 1 where he talks about the Chaldeans, or we would know them more as Babylonians. He talks about them in a the, in the sense, but he never refers to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel or Assyria taking it over. So there's some educated speculation that he wrote probably uh, in the 620s B.C., that he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah, find it interesting that he falls between those two minor prophets. And uh, so put him in a context probably uh, between the death of King Josiah and the early stages of the Babylonian captivity. Now, the outline for Habakkuk is really simple. In chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk complains to God God responds to his complaints. Habakkuk doesn't like God's response, so he complains some more. And then God responds to his second complaints. And then we see, uh, as the passage that we read a while ago, a dramatic change in his spirit in chapter 3. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. I find it interesting that his name means wrestle and embrace. And what we're going to see in chapters 1 and 2 is him wrestling with God. And in chapter 3, him embracing the truths that come uh, from God's interaction with him. I want to read a couple of passages and then I'll pray. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, that's his wrestling with God. Let me reread the passage that we read a while ago as the embracing of God. The last three verses of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Father, as I have studied this book, I've come to realize that Habakkuk is every man, every woman, even boys and girls in their walk with you. That there are times, there are things that cause us to to struggle in understanding and even explaining your role in the world. And so, Lord, I thank you that Habakkuk is honest enough to struggle with his faith, but then we can rejoice with him and seek uh, to be the same, that he could end up rejoicing in the Lord and saying, no matter what God chooses to do, it's fine with me. Lord, Help us to learn from Habakkuk today practical lessons that await us uh, in this study. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, we see his first complaint. Habakkuk was looking around at his nation, Judah. He realized what a mess it was in, and He realized that Judah had learned nothing from their cousins to the north in Israel, who had been wiped off the map by Assyria in 722 B.C. As we have learned from other prophets, in the nation of Judah was worship of false gods and idols, abuse and neglect of the poor, and he would add in his narrative violence, destruction, strife, iniquity, perversion of law, order, and justice. And in verse 4, he sums it up. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, as Habakkuk wrestled with this emotionally and spiritually, the conflict in his spirit was this. He knew God to be holy and righteous and just, good, merciful, and gracious. He knew him to be the protector and provider of the righteous. But for the life of him, there was one thing he couldn't figure out. God didn't seem to be doing anything, and even beyond that, didn't seem to care. Even though... Through the other prophets, he had told Judah, you are going to face judgment. So he asked two questions, and one in verse 2 and the other in verse 3. How long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Is that not the cry of many believers at times in their lives? He adds, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly Look at wrong. Have you ever felt that way? That God was not only silent, he didn't care, he wasn't listening, and especially he was not doing anything. Well, we see in his spirit a reminder of how easy it is to confuse God's silence with inactivity and lack of concern. It's so easy for us as believers to conclude like Habakkuk, that because it appears God is doing nothing, then it must mean he is not doing anything. Now, I love God's first response to Habakkuk. 
I'm going to paraphrase it for you. It's found in verses 5 through 11, chapter 1. Habakkuk, since you think I've done nothing about the situation you've been praying about to me, I want you to look outside your little world in Judah. When you see what I'm doing, you're not going to believe it. What I'm very busy doing, Habakkuk, is raising up the Chaldeans. You know those mean and nasty Babylonians? I plan to use them to bring judgment and justice on Judah that you've been begging me to do. Habakkuk, you know those Babylonians are fully capable of completing the job I'm going to give them. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves, and swoop down like mighty eagles to devour their prey. Arrogantly they laugh at and mock the king who stands in their way. Their power and military prowess is their God. Now in verse 12 up through verse 2-1, we see Habakkuk's response to God's response. Now remember in verse 1-5, he says, I'm doing a work that you won't believe if you're told it. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. That's what God said to him before he spoke. Now, God could not have been more right because we see in his response, not only did he not believe it, he was astounded, but not in a positive way of like, way to go, God, but in a negative way, you're going to do what, God? And so this is his response. Let me paraphrase it. Lord, please let me remind you that you are the eternal sovereign Lord of the universe who is 100% grade A holy. Surely it is not in your plan that the people of Judah die at the hands of vicious, ungodly Babylonians. Remember, God, your eyes are too pure to see evil or to look at wrong. So why would you even think of violating your holiness by not only looking on evil, but even more importantly, by remaining silent while you use those wicked, violent men like the Babylonians to gobble up nations made up of people who are more righteous than they are, especially those of us in Judah? Lord, is this how it's going to be from now on? Now, Habakkuk, it's not that Habakkuk minded that Judah be judged and punished by God. He, that's what this whole thing's about. God, why haven't you done anything yet? What was going on in his spirit is he wanted to be done at the hands of somebody who was better than they were. If he had thought it through, he would have realized there wasn't anybody better. The closest one to have a chance was Israel, and they were wiped off the map in 722 because they were so evil. And so there was nobody more righteous than the people of Judah for God to use to punish them. And so God had chosen to use the Babylonians. Now, who among us has not been like Habakkuk such that when we pray, We have in mind how God has to answer the prayer and what means he's going to use in order for us to consider it answered. It's just one of those things that comes with prayer. Well, in verse 2-1, I love his response. 
Now that I've given God my response like a soldier on night watch, I will take my post and wait for him to respond. And once he does, then I'll know how I'm going to respond back to him. That's some guts. When you think about it, you know, one of the things I was thinking about in my preparation is, boy, wouldn't it be nice if you could have a conversation with God like a back at had with God? Well, you know, there's some folks in Scripture that had those kinds of conversations. Look what they ended up being told. Moses, Noah, they talked with God directly. I think how it is for me right now is okay. Now, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, we see God's response to Habakkuk's response. In verses 2 and 3, he says, The Lord answered me, write the vision. In other words, the, the conversation he's having with God. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Warn him with the conversation we've had. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What God was saying to him in that, I have a master plan. I am at work putting all the logistics together. And be patient, Habakkuk. The time will come and it will come surely. Now, in verses 4 to 20, we don't have time to look at, look at it in much detail. But in, in these verses, God speaks about the wicked Babylonians. And he says, if you want to look at a perfect example of an unrighteous person, you look at them. Because they are arrogant, independent of God in every way, greedy to the core. Now, in contrast to their unrighteousness, and this is interesting that God drops just right in the middle of the conversation about how bad the Babylonians are, this positive word. When he says, behold, his soul, he's talking about the unrighteous man. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The Holy Spirit thought so much of those words, the righteous shall live by his faith. They inspired Paul in Romans and Galatians and the writer of Hebrews to quote that part of that verse. It's that significant. Now, in contrast to their, unright to their unrighteousness, we have the righteousness that we're going to be speaking of today. And then in verse 6, there's some hope. In verse 6, the first part of it, we see that, that God said to Habakkuk, he said there's an opportunity coming to those who will have been overpowered and devoured by the Babylonians. He says, shall not all these, meaning those whom the Babylonians have trampled, take up their taunt against him, meaning the unrighteous Babylonian, with scoffing and riddles? You're going to have your opportunity someday, God says. Now, the rest of the chapter is a litany of woes that God pronounces against the Babylonians. And I encourage you to read that um, 
when you get home so you'll understand. But what are the main truths that come from that part of the book? Number one, God will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. Even if he takes longer than we think in making it happen, we can, as we have sung this morning, we can rely on his faithfulness. And then in verse 20, we see that the beautiful words that God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. What a beautiful way to, to wrap up some really not so pleasant conversation about the Babylonians. Now, this brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 goes in a totally different direction. First of all, Habakkuk begins in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. He begins with a renewed fear and awe of God for his power and what he's at work in doing in the world. And so he declares that. And then through the rest of the chapter, he talks about in symbolic language the exodus from, from Egypt that God pulled off through Moses. Now, what, what is he expressing through this? He's expressing a spirit of thanksgiving as he remembers all the good that God has done for his people, Judah, uh, throughout history. And then we come to the verses that we were uh, focusing on, verses 17 through 19. He describes in beautiful poetic language this level of faith he has grown to during his time of testing and struggle. It's a level of faith and spirit of abandon that says, even if God does not deliver me or bless me in the manner I want him to, I will still love, serve, and obey him. It's directly opposite to the level of faith and spirit of abandon that says, I will love, serve, and obey God only if he blesses me. There's a world of difference between the two. And so in this narrative, we see Habakkuk moving from this struggles with God at verse 1, 2 through 4, chapter 1, 2 through 4, and now this transition of spirit to the level of faith and surrender to God's service that we see in the last three verses. Now, as a point of bringing this down to us, I want to ask and answer two questions this morning. First, how did Habakkuk move from his struggles with God in 1, 2, through 4 to his confident surrender to his will in 3, 17 through 19? Second, why does it matter how he did it? Well, what I would like to do is answer the first and second question first. Why does it matter? It matters because my experience in 45 years of ministry is that each of us at some point will be where Habakkuk was at the beginning of chapter 1. Difficult things happen to us and around us that when taken together with what we believe about God causes us to scratch our heads 
not just to our scalps, but all the way down to our brains trying to figure out what God is up to and why he's his role in them. It's because we have chosen to believe there's a God who is holy, righteous, just, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, gracious, loving, kind, and good, that we sometimes struggle to reconcile who we know God to be with what is happening in our lives and what is happening in the world around us. You see, if you choose to believe in God as the Bible presents him, somewhere along the way, you're going to swallow hard. If not, I don't think you're thinking much about your faith. Therefore, it's much value. There's much value in taking note of how Habakkuk was able to make the transition from the two. Now, to answer question two, how did Habakkuk move from his struggles with God in two through four to his confident surrender to God's will in the last three verses? The answer is found in chapter two, verse four. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, faith is the key. Faith has been and always will be the key. So when God tells Habakkuk in 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith, he not only means this, that that's how a person is saved and how a person is declared righteous, but it also means it's through our faith lived out daily, minute by minute, that we're able to live righteously. Now, I want to stop for an aside. Was it a lack of faith for Habakkuk to question God like he did? I've had people from time to time over my years of ministry suggest that very thing. They'll say something to me, well, I know I'm not supposed to question God. I've done a lot of thinking about that over the years, and this is what I've concluded. Faith, a question in God, can be faith if several um, criteria are met. Number one, we ask him believing that he has the answer. But also, we ask him in the spirit Whatever answer he gives me, I am willing to obey and do. You see, asking God why for an explanation is an act of faith. If we're willing to trust and obey him, and we ask those questions so we can believe him more, not so that we can doubt him more. Now, notice something important. Habakkuk allowed his questions to drive him to God, not away from God. And why is that important? It's because of what waits on us on the other side of seeking and asking. It's what Jesus promised in Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. God welcomes those who seek him through question, 
I would say God welcomes those who seek him through questions asked in faith. Now, so what is the big lesson we learn from Habakkuk? We must first come to trust God's nature and character so that we can then come to trust his use of his sovereignty. We must trust God's nature and his character. Our knowledge and understanding of God should not be based on collective, it seems to me, that we and other people who speculate about God say he is. What our understanding and knowledge about God should be based on all of the thus saith the Lord's that we find in Scripture about him. You see, it was Habakkuk's incomplete understanding of God's nature and character that made him struggle in chapters 1 and 2. It was because of his incomplete understanding of God's holiness and justice and purity and how he uses that that caused him to struggle. So the valuable lesson for us in this is that possessing a correct understanding and belief about the love, wisdom, goodness, power, justice, faithfulness of God is revealed in the Bible is critical. You see, we must view God and life through lenses that have been corrected by God's truth. So here is a wise word to each of us today. Since our struggles with God and his actions in our life and in the world will arise from how life seems to match up with what we believe about him, we would do well to make sure that we study hard and understand correctly his nature, and his character. Now, let me use one attribute of God as an illustration. In Psalm 134.8, it says, O taste and see that God is good. So we can conclude that God is good. Now, many see that part of God's character as meaning he's good He's always good like ice cream is good. You see, he looks good, feels good, and tastes good going down. Now, with that worldview of goodness, a person is inclined to conclude that since God is ice cream good, then nothing bad is going to happen to me. Nothing bad is going to happen to those I love. And But if something un-ice cream-like does happen in life, then I know from Romans 8, 28, that God is going to make some kind of ice cream out of the bad. Let me give you a warning. To come to that conclusion is to set an emotional and spiritual ambush for yourself that will jump on you like ugly on an armadillo and knock you right to the ground. <laughs> to view God's goodness as always been good like ice cream is to overlook the fact that he is also good like medicine. Now, I'm an adult. I still don't like cough syrup and the way it tastes. 
I get that spoon and I put that in my mouth. I hold it as my jaws as tight as I can. I hold my breath. I swallow. I shake my head. But guess what? And I say, how can medicine be that tastes that bad be good for you? But then my cough stops. And I realize that good can be healing even though it may not come as something that tastes so good. You see, the mature believer understands that even though life is often filled with God's goodness in the sense of ice cream is good, there are other times when the goodness of God is good, like medicine is good and comes wrapped in hardship and heartbreak. Mature believers realize that the goodness of God promised in Romans 8, 28, it's designed to mold us into the image of Christ, his son, to make us holy, not necessarily happy. That's what God desires to happen in every believer. So this brings us to the second thing that must happen in our lives to reach the maturity of Habakkuk. Having understood the character and nature of God, we must then come to trust and find joy in the sovereignty of God. What does it mean to trust his sovereignty? It means based on who we know him to be, we trust God's use of his sovereignty to work all things together for good. We trust him that he would never use his sovereignty to abuse anyone or any situation. You see, Habakkuk acknowledged that God is Lord and is creator and sustainer of the universe. He's in charge. But what made him the boss? He's in charge because 100% of whatever he determines desires to happen will happen. Nothing can thwart it. He's in charge because he's all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, eternal, without any limits placed on him. So we see in verses 18 and 19 in chapter 3, a newfound joy and confidence in Habakkuk regarding his relationship with the Lord. And that's got to happen in you and me as well. How then can we recognize that we have surrendered to the sovereignty and the lordship of God in our lives? Number one. An important step in that faith journey is when we come to understand and believe that life ultimately is about God and not all about us. It's when, two, it's when we come to believe and live in light of the fact that we are his servants, he is not ours. Three, it's when we come to realize that it's not his main purpose to make the good life possible for us but it's our main purpose to so live that his glory is made known in our lives and the world at large. Four, it's when we accept his true and live at peace knowing there are simply some things God is Lord of the universe is not obligated to tell us. And then last, it means that though we may not understand as much about God as we would want to, we still believe and trust in the heart of God the purposes of God, the methods of God, and the timing of God. Now, there's a third thing we must do. 
We must stand strong in grateful remembrance of what God has done in the past to guide, guard, and protect us. Habakkuk's prayer song in chapter 3 uses beautiful imagery to talk about the acts of God in history, in the history of the people of Israel. Going back to when God led Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt and orchestrated all of the plagues to make sure that Pharaoh was willing for it to happen. So Habakkuk developed a confidence in his and Judah's futures that was grounded in the fact that since God had acted to deliver them, and he's the same yesterday and tomorrow, that he would do the same for him and the people of Judah. Doing so enabled him to believe firmly in what God was going to do in bringing judgment on Judah through the Babylonians and what would happen after that. This grateful remembering can do the same for each of us. It's when we combine a correct understanding of God's character with a grateful remembrance of all he's done for us in the past that we will come to the point where we can confidently trust his sovereignty. Habakkuk's prophecy serves as one more reminder from the minor prophets that God will not let any person's sin go unjudged and unpunished. Initially, Habakkuk made the mistake of concluding that God's seeming silence meant that he didn't care and wasn't doing anything. We may be tempted to conclude the same thing regarding the need for salvation. The message is clear in Habakkuk like the other prophecies. God will punish sin. He will hold us accountable. And if we do not respond in faith and repentance to him, then he will judge us and we will suffer eternal condemnation. Those who need to be saved may be like God was addressing in, in chapter 2, 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time and hastens to the end it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, for it surely will come, it will not delay. As I studied those verses, I thought of something Peter said in St. Peter 3, 7. 2 Peter 3, 7. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Habakkuk didn't realize it, but that's what he was struggling with. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What God is saying there, yes, it appears like nothing is happening right now. That's so he can give the unsaved time to come to salvation. But he does add, don't take that for granted. Because if you do, you may get caught short 
when that judgment comes like a thief in the night. My prayer is that if you do not know the Lord today as your Savior, you have no confident assurance that the moment you take your last breath, you'll die and go to heaven. I pray that you'll do it before you leave today. And to make that possible, after I pray, we're going to stand and sing a hymn, or not a hymn, sorry, wrong service. (laughs) We're going to sing a song of invitation. Two of our ministers are going to be at the head of these aisles at the back near the sound booth, and they would love to talk to you about how you can come to know Christ as Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these lessons that can be learned from Habakkuk. Lord, I thank you that even when we think that these little books at the end of the Old Testament don't have anything to really to say to us about, except that God judges and God punishes and we better get right. Lord, I, I pray that what I've shared today will help each of us as we walk through the journey of our life in an effort to become the mature believer that Habakkuk became. Anyone who needs to respond, Lord, I pray that they'll do that as we sing or after we have sung. And I pray this in Jesus' name.